Welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Tom Slater, Deputy Editor at Spiked, and today I'll be talking free speech, Trump and PC with Brett Stevens. Spiked's articles, essays, videos and podcasts are free. There's no paywall and no subscriptions. So if you enjoy this episode, please leave us a review, a rating or even better, a donation. Just go to spiked-online.com and click on the donate button at the top right of the homepage. Without you, we wouldn't be here, so please give generously if you can. Now, on with the show. There are genuinely productive, politically incorrect things to say about all manner of things, you know. I wish Trump were politically incorrect. Instead, he's just an asshole. (laughs) Sometimes it feels like America is divided by two warring authoritarianisms. The election of Donald Trump was perceived by many as a backlash against political correctness and the speech policing of the left. Finally, he was a politician, his supporters said, who said what he thought and refused to be bound by polite society etiquette. And yet, in his refusal to abide any criticism, in his loathing of the First Amendment and his love of libel laws, the US president seems at least as thin-skinned and as quick to censor as the so-called liberals he rails against. Someone who has found himself in the middle of this new culture war is Brett Stevens, the columnist and never-Trump conservative who has riled both the illiberal right and the illiberal left. Last year, he left the Wall Street Journal for the New York Times and has found himself the target of the Twitter mobs of both the left and the right. I sat down with Brett in the Times' offices to discuss the twin threats to free speech today. So Brett, um, we're here to talk about the kind of challenges to liberal thought and particularly to free speech. Um, and I almost want to start with yourself in a way, because your presence at the New York Times, at least for some readers, was seen almost as a bit of a provocation <laughs> in itself. Um, so could you just say a little bit about your move from the Wall Street Journal to the Times and, and what reaction that spurred amongst at least some readers? Well, I was so um, tired of being hated at the Wall Street Journal for my never Trump views that I decided to go to the Times so that I could be hated for all of my other views. <laughs> One of the things I thought was fascinating was, in I think it was your first column, at least your first column in Post, um, was this piece which kind of probed at some of the consensus around climate change. And what was fascinating is then your second column was kind of answering a series of um, of reader right. questions. And one of the things that sort of struck me about that was even people who, not everyone, of course, but some people who were even supporting you were kind of hailing it as a bit of a fantastic troll in a way. Do you think there's a bit of a danger nowadays that provocation is seen as kind of suspicious? It's seen as something which is a little bit disingenuous. It's kind of mischievous without point. I'm not sure what, in fact, is wrong with provocation if it is a spur to thought and if it starts a conversation and if that conversation is uh, uh, intelligent and productive. And that's what I was attempting to do with uh, that column, which was not to question the science of climate change, but rather to say that the science of climate change raises a number of questions about which we ought to show some intellectual humility because the solutions aren't necessarily as simple as they're sometimes made out uh, to be. The reaction to the column, frankly, stunned and dismayed me, not because there aren't intelligent rebuttals to the point that I was making, but some of the reaction was in the category of not even being wrong, which is to say it's not even rising to address the subject at hand. One could have made all kinds of points about the nature of uncertainty and how we how we deal with it. Instead, the suggestion was that I was engaged in this form of uh, dishonesty. 
the moment you start insisting that every op-ed be devoid of irony, satire, wit, provocation, then you're on the road to Pravda or Izvestia or, or whatever, where everything has to be earnest and table-thumping. And God forbid that we should we should reach that point. I, I don't – I'm trying to write for the intelligent reader. I can't help the fact that somewhere in my readership there are less intelligent readers who don't understand um, the uses of irony or satire. But if I wrote for them, I would be doing a disservice to my profession. Do you think that people today are more likely to kind of just wallow in like-mindedness? And, or is that something which, unfortunately, human beings are quite drawn to doing and always have been? Or is there something different about the moment, do you think? Well, I think the difference is technological. I think people have always been tribal. I think people have always been uh, attracted to worldviews, ideologies, faiths, whatever. But the difference today is that you are now able, thanks to social media silos, to immerse yourself in thought bubbles where all you hear are echoes and extensions of your own thinking. And I think that's a real problem. The, the Social media has ironically, but not entirely unsurprisingly, become anti-social media. It allows us to be our worst selves. It allows us to stand at a remove from our neighbors and other citizens with slightly different views. And it makes it possible to sort of inhabit this universe where all you hear are echoes of agreement. And that's a shame. And I think that is what has, what has changed, which is technology has accelerated impulses that wise democracies ought to restrain. Now, I think especially the kind of Twitter mobbing phenomenon is often discussed as being a kind of left wing or a liberal thing. But one point that you make, which I think is really important, is the fact that the threats to freedom of speech come both from the left and the right. How do you kind of characterize those two attacks? Are they different? What do they have in well, common? In fact, they're very similar. And my initial joke about moving from the journal to the Times was not entirely uh, in jest. In the last year, year and a half that I was at the journal as a never Trump conservative, I got a taste of um, right-wing Twitter mobs and how ugly and ferocious they are. And they are the mirror image of what I experienced when I moved over to the Times. They're, they're sort of one and the same. And I think the dividing line in politics is less and less between liberal and conservative and more between liberal and illiberal, or as someone said, between open and closed. You either believe in such a thing as democracy, pluralism, tolerance, and a wide and vigorous exchange of views, or you don't in the name of community, nation, manners, propriety, one thing or another. There's a universe of opinion, both on the left and right, that wants to suppress speech. And one of the striking things coming to look at the kind of US free speech debate from a British perspective, given that we don't have a First Amendment, and there are plenty of things that the state will lock you up for saying, is the fact that nevertheless, a lot of the cultural debate is incredibly similar. So the idea of hate speech being a form of harm, a form of violence, various other ideas about where speech strays too far. I was just wondering, do you think in a sense that given how robust the First Amendment is, that that has bred a certain level of kind of complacency in relation to fighting the cultural battle for freedom of speech, which seems if not more intense here than it does in other places around the world. 
We're fortunate in the United States to have a First Amendment because it has provided armature, maybe armament, to a whole host of people who find their free speech rights threatened in unexpected places. I think there's probably no place in America where free speech is under greater threat than in academia, which of course is supposed to be the beating heart of free speech. Vigorous debate is essential for intellectual uh, excellence, and one must have foolish thoughts before one can have intelligent thoughts. The, the two are, are, are twinned. Then why the fuck did you accept the position? I have a different vision. You should step down. If that is what you think about being a master, you should step down. It is not about creating an intellectual speech. It's about creating a home here. You are not doing that. You are disgusting. The real case for free speech in academia is in a First Amendment case. It's an intellectual excellence case. I don't think you can produce really great thinking in an environment which does not provide wide open avenues to intellectual challenge. And intellectual challenge will also often be politically incorrect and make lots of people uncomfortable. And kind of moving from the greatest thinking to probably some of the, the worst about these days and the figure of Donald Trump, because one thing that was interesting about his election was that on the one hand, he's an incredibly authoritarian character, yeah. obviously. Um, but at the same time, there was this argument even put, a, put about by many liberals, which is that in some respects, he was a reaction to a different kind of authoritarianism in relation to something like PC. So Trump voters often saying that they felt that their views weren't they weren't able to articulate them and yeah. therefore he becomes this kind of jackhammer in order to crash through that. How do we kind of unpick that, do you think? What do you think Trump's well, represented? Well, there's some truth that to way? that point. I mean, I've, I've sometimes said that there are genuinely productive, politically incorrect things to say about all manner of things, you know. Is it necessarily the case, here I'm going to say something incredibly politically incorrect, that men and women are drawn to the same professions in quite the same ways? This is not a statement about innate abilities it's not in any way challenging the inherent equality of the sexes. It's to say that maybe more women want to do X and more men want to do Y, and that might play itself out in choices of profession. I don't know. Can I say for a certainty that that's true? No. But I think it's worth thinking about and maybe making it permissible to say this, Right. However, when an engineer at Google made that same point in a fairly well-researched memo, he was fired for, for this thought that you know, maybe guys gravitate towards a certain kind of math geekness that leads to work computer science jobs. The fact that he was fired is, I think, atrocious because what he was saying was at least intellectually serious. I've sometimes said that I wish Trump were politically incorrect. Instead, he's just an asshole. <laughs> now, when Trump, for instance, stands up and mocks a disabled New York Times reporter, that's not politically incorrect. That's just assholery. Written by a nice reporter. Now the poor guy, you got to see this guy. Oh, I don't know what I said. Ah, oh, I don't remember. He's going like, I don't remember. I thought, oh, maybe that's what I said. Call women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Your Twitter account only Rosie O'Donnell. No, it wasn't. I think the big problem this country has is being politically correct. 
We really could use a politically incorrect president, but that's not what we have in Donald Trump. And people will say, well, I like Trump because he's politically incorrect. No, he's not. He's something worse than that. You made this point that the response to an illiberal right in the form of Trump, Trumpism, whatever we might want to call it, should not be an illiberal left. I just wondered if you could kind of unpack that a little bit. What in the resistance so-called do you think is... um, Well, if Trump hates the First Amendment, and he often makes statements about wanting to ratchet up libel laws and adopt a British system, which would be disastrous, why should his opponents then say, well, we hate the First Amendment too, we just hate it in a different way? If Trump wants to exclude all sorts of people and say, this is fake news or that's illegitimate, the right response is to say, no, we actually believe in the virtues of free thinking and free speech. And, and that's, the, that's the correct uh, response. And just to take up some of the left-wing liberalism, if you will, because one of the, again, the most salient points, both on campus, but also just in kind of cultural discussion more broadly, the, the idea of hate speech has made a big comeback, it feels like, in relation to American public life and discussion of this. Why is it so important to draw that distinction between words and actions, which an idea like hate speech kind of seeks to elide in some respect? Right. I mean, the, the new line of attack is that words can, in fact, cause uh, psychological trauma so that the words are actions, words are violence. I just grew up with the old-fashioned view that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never um, hurt me. Of course, words do hurt you. They, you you're insulted, you're, you're aggrieved, and so on. But once you elide that distinction, you're on your way to a kind of soft despotism. One of the things that it does is it empowers the person who claims to be offended. And that's very dangerous. We now have put altogether too much cultural power in the hands of the person who says, well, that offends me. Well, if something offends you, that should be the beginning of a conversation. Instead, it's the end of it. I think that's very dangerous. I mean, if you believe in a free society, a free society has to make that distinction between words and actions, between words and violence. No distinction, no freedom. The reason we have free speech is so that we can substitute words for weapons, so that I can rebut what you have to say with language rather than with a spear or a hatchet or a machete or or whatever. These concepts ought to be basic, and it's astonishing that they're not. And one thing which is, it feels like especially the kind of rise of the alt-right in the US, um, so-called, has really brought that kind of argument about what has the First Amendment ever done to challenge this kind of stuff. That seems to be the sort of argument. Do you reckon part of that is the fact that there is a kind of presumption that some people are just kind of beyond reason, in effect? Now, this is not to suggest that your average kind of neo-Nazi is kind of just a wayward lamb, but the idea that fundamentally that open argument can change, if not their minds and the people who might be listening to them, there just seems to be an, an idea abroad that if you have ugly ideas, it's because you're just kind of either vicious or stupid and there's not much to be done about it. Do you reckon that's a part of this discussion? Look, it's, it's a natural fact of any, any society that some portion of the people are indeed beyond reason. And it is one of the bets that democracy makes that that fraction isn't so great that it diminishes the possibility of, 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 of living freely. And I happen to think there's 200 and 40 years of pretty good anecdotal evidence in the American experiment, and you might say even longer in, in the British one, that people are not really altogether beyond reason. I mean, look, there's a great scene in The Republic of Plato 
where Thrasymachus, who makes the argument that justice is the advantage of the stronger and that uh, injustice is, in fact, greater than justice, uh, Thrasymachus gets thrashed in his argument with Socrates, and he blushes. And that blush is significant because it means that even a man who attempts to make the case that he is beyond the call of reason is in some innate sense bound by the rules of rationality and understands when he's been beaten in an argument. And I don't know if it's true, but I think it's an interesting moment in political philosophy because what it says is that part of being human is that even even a Thrasymachus guy who's you could say is alt-right, neo-Nazi, he's making an argument that was essentially the foundation of, of Nazism, of all fascistic politics, that even he at some level is enjoined by a common rationality to understand that he can lose an argument. So if Thrasymachus can blush, if George Wallace, the famous segregationist politi- politician, can repent of his of his sins, if all kinds of ex-communists and Stalinists can see the error of their ways, then you have to have a certain amount of faith that this will continue to operate. There's a wonderful line in Jefferson's first inaugural address, 1801, error of opinion can be tolerated where reason is left free to combat it. And that is the fundamental democratic contention. As kind of free speech advocates, there's a tendency to kind of say, well, offensive speech is what you have to put up with yeah. in the sense that you kind of section it off as like, well, this is, this is the kind of bitter side to the, to the pill, as it were. But is there not a kind of case that we need to remake, which is the fact that actually offensive speech is crucial and actually kind of a progressive element of this insofar as there are many things that were once offensive, which actually proved to be quite right. important. I think gay men, gay people should get married. Uh, 40 years ago, that would have been considered offensive to a wide majority of Americans. All the rights that have been gained in the past century or more have offended a great, great many people. The suffragettes of, of a century ago was considered offensive to a great many people, including a great many women and so on. So in all social progress, I don't want to say all social progress, but a great deal of social progress from Galileo and Darwin onwards begins with offensive speech. It, it's very hard to make a judgment in the here and now that what I consider offensive might not, in fact, on much deeper reflection, be not just provocative, but actually true and right. And and if you don't make allowances that for every 10 offensive things or 100 offensive things that are genuinely just gratuitous and stupid, one of them is going to be the germ of a an important social movement, a valuable idea, a revolution in our scientific thinking then you've foreclosed the possibilities of progress. So you would think that progressives of all people would understand that very point, that we need to tolerate, in a sense, 99 knuckleheads because the 100th knucklehead might be Steve Jobs or or Charles Darwin or, you know, Harvey Milk or who, whoever. And and that that seems to have been lost because I, I think the instinct for a certain kind of authoritarianism is is a psychological one that transcends political ideology. Very finally, in the kind of age of Donald Trump, it's quite a popular argument, particularly on the, the left, to talk about this is what happens when you let kind of free speech run amok, when people are allowed to express even the most crazy ideas. Why do you think at this time, as ever, it's important that there's more provocation, more debate, more offence giving? 
Unfortunately, as I, as I said earlier, Trump is such a poor exemplar of a provocateur because he speaks and thinks in such crude and often ugly ways. And so among the ironies of the Trump presidency is that it has caused a backlash against so-called politically incorrect thinking because he, to the extent that he represents it, sensible people might want less of it. But we are living in an age in which democracy is playing defense, in which classical ideas or classic concepts of liberalism and the open society are being threatened by the model of efficient authoritarianism championed by China, by the repressive dictatorship or democratic dictatorship of Erdogan and Putin, by the illiberalism and nationalism of Le Pen and the AFD. We've seen this movie before. It happened. It played out in the 1920s and the 1930s. And because we've seen it before, we ought to, we ought to redouble our efforts to defend core liberal democratic concepts and values. There's hardly any that is more central than free speech. It is what defines ultimately a free society, what makes social progress possible, what makes intellectual excellence possible. And if we stop defending it now, and if the, if the people who ought to be the champions stop defending it, we're going to be in a very bad way. It's a perfect place to end it. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Spiked Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. If you enjoyed it, please do leave us a rating and a review. Head over to spiked-online.com to get your daily fix of spiked opinion. And while you're there, if you'd like to help us continue to produce our free and fearless journalism, please do consider making a donation. Thanks for listening and see you next time.